0: Today, I'm going to talk about unity and about how to maintain the gift of peace that comes with the good news that we are all beloved by God, no matter where we stand in relationship to the issues that are dividing us. Two weeks ago, I received an email from someone who described herself as living in a politically divided household, a conservative Republican married to a liberal Democrat. She explained that after 2016, it became really hard to have civil conversations about politics. My guess, it's been harder in 2020. She told me that she was thankful for the message my friend Adam gave about the importance of not judging one another, but she wanted some additional content around what it actually looks like. How do you refrain from judging others for their beliefs when you are so far apart? And confident that they have it wrong. How do we get along with people who are on opposite sides? I think every one of us needs help here now. Earlier that week, I had sat in on two very different conversations. One with a group that was lamenting the ongoing grip of racism in our country wishing that people could come together, find a way to reform the systems, move toward equality, quit denying the dangers of the virus and put on masks already. And then, two nights later, I sat with a different group, who were pretty sure racism wasn't a real problem anymore. Tired of the victim narrative that the liberals are promoting, angered at the absurdity of governors pandering to rioters and looters, the virus isn't as bad as the media makes it out to be, etc., etc. The polarization between those two groups and many of us these days is absolutely astounding. And it seems impossible not to become emotionally triggered and judgmental when we hear comments from one side or the other that don't sit with us, and so, like the woman who sent me that email, we're not only worried about our country, we're concerned for the relationships we have with the people that we love, but who are on other sides from one another. We wanna stay friends and we wanna be able to talk about the issues, but it's hard. How do we put Jesus' guidance not to judge into a practice in an environment where we have such strong feelings about what is right and what is wrong, which are so different from others? How do we maintain unity and peace despite our differences? Today, I want to show you that this question points us back to the gospel, which teaches us that God calls us to stay together because he has united us. And then I will give you six specific steps to take in order to put Jesus' guidance into practice. And now my hope is that this will be helpful to you, and I offer this as a shepherd who wants to pass on the practical guidance he has received from the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus, who wants us to live in peace even when we are divided by our ideas. We're going to start with the theological ground for our calling, the gospel, which is the good news of God's grace that puts all people in the same boat, equally lost, but also equally loved. God has decided to treat all of us who had made ourselves outsiders through our sin as if we are all insiders to him, beloved sons and daughters of the one true God, and therefore, brothers and sisters together because of god's grace for all of us whatever walls divide us christ has broken them down so living in a manner that is worthy of this good news requires that we resist the urge to build new walls and divide and instead we're called to work at receiving and fostering our god-given unity I want to take a close look at how Paul teaches this very idea in the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. In the fourth chapter, verse one reads like this, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here is a subject that matters so much to Paul that he begs us to take it to heart. The way you lead your life, in Greek, literally walk, must bring up the balance, like on a scale, that's what worthy means here, so that your way of life is in balance with the gospel. I want you to think about that. A life that is in balance with the good news of what God has done for all people. I want you to listen to what Paul says that looks like in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The person whose life is in gospel balance is humble and gentle about his convictions. He is patient when he argues with others that don't see things the same way. When there is conflict, she hangs in there. She is selfless and kind. That's what it means when someone bears with another in love. Of course, this is always hard to do, but especially with the issues that are pulling us apart right now. Which is why Paul taught that this kind of living requires, this is verse three, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul added this here in Ephesians because the church there had two different groups in it who were living as if they were divided. He describes it as a wall of hostility between them. But life in balance with the gospel joyfully accepts that Christ has broken down the walls, And then, note carefully, it is a life that works to maintain, not to achieve unity. And there's a big difference. The truth about us is we cannot unite ourselves. But the gospel tells us that in Jesus, God has united us through the Holy Spirit. That's what the phrase, of the Spirit, means here. The source and origin of our unity is the holy spirit something god has actually done and then given to us freely whether we know it or not all of us are united in our common need and helplessness apart from god no exceptions and subsequent to the resurrection of jesus all of us are united in being given the gift of god's mercy and rescue again No exceptions. Paul says so in the second chapter of Ephesians. Now, of course, we know that some believe this and others reject this fact, which does make a big difference, but not to the deeper unity that actually binds us together all the way down at the roots. And so when a person receives this gospel and believes it, she becomes responsible for living in a way that makes it clear to others that before God, we are one, united. And of course, maintaining this unity, which is our responsibility, will require, as Paul says, making every effort. In Greek, that phrase is a single word I want you to listen to how one commentator describes it. It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude— maintaining unity is going to take everything you've got. Staying together is going to be hard work every day. It's going to take your mind and your will and your heart and every bit of your self-control. It will take everything you've got. Otherwise, you will never have a life together, which is in balance with the gospel, which is what God has called us to and what we are all responsible for working toward in these days of division. So, how does it work? How can we possibly live in a way that balances out with the truth that God has extended his grace equally to people in both groups? When it is so easy to hate people on the other side of the lines that we've drawn, what are the specific efforts that we should make? Practically speaking, what can a person do that will increase the likelihood that he maintains unity and peace? Here is where I've got six practical steps to offer. The first three are for you all by yourself, and then the second three are for when you are talking with that other person or group. I've split them up because unless you're willing to work on yourself first— you're unlikely to do well once you get into it with the other and so let's start with the three steps to take all by yourself these are as practical as i can manage and i mean for you to take them to heart and move forward in order to receive the help that you need first step spend less time watching the news Now, maybe you already watch very little, so this doesn't feel like it applies to you, but I think almost everyone spends more time-consuming media than is good for them. And I say this because the platforms which deliver news are not just informing you, they are forming you, making you into a different person hour by hour. Whichever side you're on, this is how media works. Because we are wired to be influenced by the company we keep, and that personality on the screen who gives his commentary about what's happening in the world affects you in the same way a friend who you spend time with every day affects you. And the simple fact is, it is highly likely that he is forming you to be the kind of person who does not maintain unity. Listen to this wisdom from Proverbs. This is in chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. Make no friends with those given to anger and do not associate with hotheads, or you may learn their ways and entangle yourself in a snare. The guy you watch every night is mean-spirited when he talks about the other side. He's dismissive and disrespectful of his opponents. He's intentionally provocative, routinely making straw men of the other side, stoking your fear and anxiety, and making you more and more angry. And the truth is, it's bad for you, especially if you want to grow in humility and gentleness, patience, kindness, and charity. So if you want to make progress, the first thing— is to cut the time you spend on the news in half. Get the information you need, but stop letting your chosen network form you. Less time on the news, that's first. Now, this second commitment is related. Spend more time reading the Bible. You can use the hour you save on the news for this. And of course, I know that you might think he's saying this because he's a pastor and it's his job to say stuff like this, but that's not it. My own experience of the positive effects of regular exposure to the Bible convinces me that this is good guidance and I want to be helpful to you. When a person reads the Bible regularly like a television watcher, she opens herself to the unique influence of the voice of God, which speaks when we attend to the words of Scripture patiently and with humility. Time spent with the Psalms or in the wisdom literature, with the prophets or the Gospels, will have an influence on the kind of person you become, just like the newscaster does, but in the other direction. The influence will be slow and hard to see at the beginning because the Bible can be obscure and confusing, but you should hang in there. And if you do over time, you will see a change in the kind of person you are becoming. Listen to Paul's guidance from the book of Philippians. This is chapter four, verse eight. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Chances are, your hour in the news is not exposing you to things which you would call pure or pleasing or commendable. But if you spend an hour reading Jesus' teaching in Matthew, for example, chapters 5 through 7, Or any one of Paul's letters, or the book of Proverbs, or five Psalms in the evening and then in the morning, this will give you excellent, pure, pleasing, commendable things to think about. Things that are worthy of praise and honorable to dwell upon in your mind. And when you do this regularly, God will shape you into a person who is more able to maintain unity for those times when you do get in the discussions and a person who is far less likely to be an agent of further division. One more step before you start talking, third bit of guidance is directly from Jesus, and it is this, work on you before working on others. Christians should engage in discussions about divisive issues. We are responsible for speaking the truth But before anyone is ready to offer a word of correction or challenge to another, he must be willing to critically and honestly examine himself first. So work on you. And only after that, get involved in trying to offer your vision to others. When Jesus taught about judging, he made this point very vividly. This is Matthew chapter 7 verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Did you notice the end goal in this teaching? It is that you should see clearly enough to help your neighbor see better than he does right now. A speck is small, but when it's in your eye, it makes everything blurry, and Jesus knows that there are going to be people around you who won't see the issues clearly, and sometimes they will need your help to take out the speck. But before you try to help like that, you have to examine your own vision and perform whatever procedures are required to remove the log from your own eye. Which means a commitment to critical self examination. Because you are biased, just like I am, and just like everyone else is who you talk to. You will naturally want to see the issues in the light that is most favorable to you. You will unconsciously interpret through your past experiences, which will have been shaped by your parents and the people that were close to you when you were young, and your favorite teacher or author. And to be responsible in removing the log, you will have to honestly examine all of these untouched assumptions which cloud your vision of the issues. Now, here's how to do this. You will have to become familiar with the best representatives of the viewpoints which you are inclined to reject. Stretch yourself Learn in depth about the alternative way to see that issue before you reject it. You have to take time to understand it. And it won't do to go searching in the same corners of the internet where you always find your effective rebuttal. Get a book made of paper written by an intelligent person who you disagree with and then learn. Work on becoming clearer in your own vision so you can help others see more clearly. That's the third step. Now all three of these will take work, of course. We're responsible for making every effort. So before you even try to talk, these are the three steps to take. And now once you have, you're ready for the next three. Simple, but critical once you begin to talk. The first is that you should listen more than you speak. Absolutely basic, might seem too obvious to be worth saying, but the fact is we have very few models for what it looks like when two people with opposing viewpoints engage in productive civil conversation, where they listen to one another. Instead, we see someone being interviewed, but really it's just a setup, both sides waiting to pounce, jumping in to assert their viewpoint whenever there's a pause or just outright shouting over each other. Productive conversation requires genuine listening, where each person gives the other a sympathetic hearing. Unhurried time to express themselves resisting the urge to interject and assert, but instead exercising self-control and being quiet, which takes humility an awareness that you don't know everything yet. And that other person who you've already written off might actually have something to teach you. If you're willing to listen, then you can learn, but if not, you're not even ready to try having a conversation. It would be better for you to just keep quiet altogether. But for the sake of maintaining unity, we have to work at this. Making every effort means listening. I want you uh, to hear how Jesus' own brother put it. This is in the letter of James, the first chapter, verse 19. You must understand this, my beloved, let Everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Go into your discussion committed to keeping quiet. Maybe even tell one another before you start that you're each going to work at listening, only speaking in order to ask for help understanding. If hearing them describe their viewpoint makes you angry, ask God to help you exercise self-control and don't react, keep quiet. Listen even when you disagree and then seek genuine understanding through patient listening. That's first. And then there's a second bit of guidance right here in the same passage from James who says not only that we should be quick to listen, but that we should be slow to speak. That does not mean do not speak. Slow to speak means you should share your thoughts too, but only in a particular way. Slow, when it's your turn, no interrupting, only after you've heard the other and she is ready to listen carefully considering how it will sound, choosing words for clarity rather than combat, faithfully editing what you say, removing every divisive element that is not absolutely necessary, diligently refusing to engage in caricature, name-calling, exaggeration, hyperbole, or presenting opinion as if it's fact, Now, if you've done the work of these first four steps, then you are responsible for taking this fifth step and speaking up. Because you will have something to say that needs to be heard something about right and wrong, something about justice and God's disposition towards those who are suffering. Something about the inappropriateness of violence and destruction as a strategy. Something about divisive rhetoric that turns people against one another. Something about taking responsibility for ourselves where we can. Something about preserving life and treasuring the dignity of every single person, no matter what they think. Something about compassion and kindness and gentleness, and self-control. Speak, but do so slowly. That's the second bit of guidance. And then one more for your time together. This last one, because I know that even if you work at these previous five, you will still find yourselves coming up against barriers that are too high for you to get over. And so when that happens, here's the last one. Always keep the door open, no matter how far apart you are from that other person. If you believe the gospel, you have to do this because the gospel tells us that none of us are our ideas. Your adversary is not his opinions about the issues and neither are you. The gospel says that you are the one for whom Christ laid down his life. He did that even when you had the wrong ideas. And God chooses not to retract his love from you when you get things wrong, as you will. And since this is how God regards you, as well as that other person, you are bound by the gospel to see him in just the same way always as the one for whom God has laid down his life in Christ also. You will want to see him differently. You will want to put on him those labels that you're used to using, but Jesus says you are forbidden from reducing him to that name. That's not who he is. He is God's beloved for whom Christ chose to give his life. And when you see him that way, which is the right way, then you will keep the door open for him just as God keeps the door open for you. This is the rule for everyone who has been delivered by Christ and receives that deliverance gladly. This is Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. When we hold the door open for people who've got it wrong, we bring glory to God. And the invitation from Christ in the midst of days like these days, where we're so divided that we want to shut the door and lock it against others, is that we should keep the door open instead. And the foundation upon which we must stand if we're going to approach those others as followers of Christ ourselves is that the one who laid his life down and did that for everyone. And since we've all been welcomed by God in Christ, without having to pass a test for having the right ideas, then we are responsible for receiving others, whatever they think. Welcome as Christ has welcomed you. Now, it's up to you to work on all six of these. The first three on your own, the last three together. And then when you have, with God's help, you will make progress in maintaining the unity which God has given us in the Spirit. And then we will move together toward peace. Now we need to ask for God's help because only with the help of the God who has given himself for us will we have any hope. And so let's join our hearts together now in prayer. God, we thank you that before any of us had the right ideas, you chose to give yourself for us in love. We thank you that you have delivered us from the kingdom of confusion and chaos and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, who is love. We ask for forgiveness for the many ways that we have not followed your path in giving one another time in listening in being open to one another, and instead have been judgmental and dismissive of others who have been made in your image and rescued also by your love and grace. Teach us through the time we've spent together in your word, first of all, to know that we are united because of your grace, and then secondly, to take the steps that are within our power to take, to make every effort to maintain the unity that you have given. God, help us see the joy that it is to hold the door open for one another, even when we are in very different places. And please bring peace to this land, to our communities, to our families, and to each and every one of us individually. We ask for this in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. Amen.